Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, today I welcome Helen Thorne to the podcast. Helen, good to see you. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Helen is the Director of Training and Resources at Biblical Counseling UK. Uh, she is the author of Five Things to Pray for Your City, Walking with Domestic Abuse Sufferers, Real Change and Real Change for Students, uh, Purity as Possible, which will be the focus of our podcast today, and then the forthcoming book, Hope in an Anxious World. Um, Helen, I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit about your work at uh, Biblical Counseling UK. I know you're saying pre-recording, it's a little bit like CCEF for our listeners who are familiar with that, but we'd love to hear what you do in that role. Thank you. Uh, it's a relatively new role for me. I've been doing it for just under a year. Uh, and I'm absolutely loving it. Yes, Biblical Counseling UK is very like CCEF, but the a British version of it. Uh, and so my role is an absolute joy. I get to go around talking to pastors, congregations, uh, women's groups, uh, individuals, uh, and helping them to do pastoral care from an authentically biblical perspective. Uh, it's about connecting the riches of scripture to the realities of life. And so that can be anything from writing books, writing blogs, uh, writing uh, courses, through to doing a conference talk for a, a women's conference, through to doing an evangelistic breakfast at a local church, through to gathering pastors together and helping them to tease out how to pastor people who are struggling with depression or anxiety or, or something else. And quite frankly, I can't believe they pay me for it. Uh, it's <laughs> such fun. I would happily do it for free, uh, but I don't actually tell my boss that because, yeah. you know, the pay packet does come in handy sometimes <laughs> at the end of the month. Yeah, I was going to say, let's make sure your boss doesn't listen to this because we don't <laughs> want them to catch catch one of that. Um, but no, thank you for for your work there and then for taking your time to, to come on today. Uh, for our listeners, uh, it is eight o'clock in London right now, eight o'clock at, at night. So um, I appreciate you. You've had a full day and now you're you're fitting us in right at the end of the day. But this is great, isn't it? It's one of the wonderful things about technology is you can instantly be on the other side of the world. Uh, yes. And that is a, a wonderful blessing. Yes, amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, our listeners know that we're continuing our discussion on biblical sexuality uh, today uh, by looking at the topic of uh, pornography. Uh, those who have listened know that we had Deepak Reju on to discuss this, um, but we want to address this from more of a female perspective today. And, and really, Helen, as, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, you know, Deepak was the one who told me, uh, I think, about you and some of your work. And and I, I want to say maybe he mentioned you in that podcast as well. Um, I know he's got a forthcoming book on the topic of pornography mm. and just said, as he was discussing women and their struggles with pornography, that he really looked to a lot of your work in that. So just I uh, want to say thank you for that. And that really serves as a good segue into your book, uh, Purity as Possible, How to Live Free of the Fantasy Trap. And I'd love for you just to give us a little bit of background on that book. Um, I know um, our mutual friend, Carl Lafferton, he kind of mm -hmm. shared with me how this was a blog post initially and then took on the form of a book. So would love to hear just a little bit about that. It's certainly not a book that I had ever planned on writing. And I think if I sort of 10 years ago, God had told me I'd be writing a book for women on purity and pornography, uh, I might have giggled slightly, but then that is God's good purposes in leading us forward, isn't Absolutely. it? I used to edit the Good Book Company blog post many years ago when I worked there. Uh, and as anyone that's ever edited a blog will know, blogs are, are hungry beasts. They, they need feeding uh, pretty much every day. Uh, and it is the job of the editor either to write that content themselves or to find somebody else who will. And it was a 
blustery afternoon when I was sitting at my desk uh, with that sinking feeling that I needed to post something in about half an hour's time. Uh, and I was staring at a blank Word document. <laughs> I, I literally, I had nothing. Uh, and it's, it's a horrible sinking feeling. But uh, as usual, I prayed. Uh, and as was my custom after praying, I uh, went on to several news websites uh, and saw what was hitting the headlines that week. Uh, there was a, an article that caught my attention, uh, which was uh, women use pornography too. Mm. And there were some statistics there about how the use of pornography by women had increased over the last couple of decades. Uh, I read the article, I, I did some personal reflection all quite quickly because we were now kind of 20 minutes before <laughs> uh, the deadline for the copy to go up. Uh, and I, I guess I was convicted in my own life that there had been times of deep impurity uh, and so I thought, Helen, Helen, you can do this. You know, just just be honest. Christian women use pornography too, mm. uh, and that was what went at the top of the Word document. Uh, and six hundred words later, um, we press send, and and the blog post was was posted. Now I'd like to think a few people read my blog post, but I, I was never one of those people that got thousands of hits within an hour. I'm, you know, I'm not that popular a writer and speaker. I wouldn't be very clear about that. Uh, and so when our, our tech support guy came up uh, about an hour later and said, "Helen, there's been a thousand hits on your post," I was, yeah, "Are you sure? It's not wow. been a technological glitch? Has <laughs> something gone horribly wrong?" Uh, and we looked a little closer. Um, some um, of the bigger organisations within the UK had picked up on it. I think the Gospel Coalition in the US had picked up mm. on it. Uh, and it was getting hit after hit after hit. And, and by the end of the day, it was something like 3,000 hits, which is colossally more uh, mm. than I would normally expect on, on anything I'd ever written. At that point, the lovely Carl Lafton, who was uh, a colleague at the time, um, wandered over to my desk uh, and uttered a question that will stick with me forever which was, Helen, I think we need a book for women on pornography. And I'd like you to consider writing it. And I'd like you to write it in such a way where you feel you can be honest about how utterly impure you have been throughout large proportions of your life. Mm. And I remember my heart sort of beating a little bit faster, my stomach churning. I think, um, so you're asking me to write a book to go public about the fact that I have used porn, that I regularly think impure thoughts, and you you want me to put that in writing <laughs> so other people can read it? Um, and I think my instant answer was, absolutely not. Why would anybody want to do that? Um, but he persuaded me to pray, which, of course, was a, a very wise thing for him to ask me to do. Uh, and I went away and I did pray about it, and I felt utterly convicted uh, that a book like that was needed. Mm. And why not me? Why should I hide behind anonymity when there are real people, real women struggling with this issue? Why not just be honest about the fact that Christian women do fall over in this area, but actually together in Christ, we have an incredible hope. Mm. And so that, that was how the book was born. Uh, it wasn't the easiest book to write. Um, there were moments where I uh, didn't want to be honest. There were moments where um, people wondered what I was doing. Um, people either thought, thank you, Lord, uh, we really need this book. Or they thought, Helen, why would you write a book like that? No one is going to read it. Women don't struggle with that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and so there were encouragements and discouragements along the way. 
Uh, but eventually Purity is Possible uh, was born uh, originally with a black and pink cover, but now mm. with a black and white cover. Mm. Yeah, well, well definitely. I, I just want to thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for, for doing that. I mean, that, that takes amazing courage and vulnerability, uh, like you said, to <laughs> have that written in print uh, with your name on it out there. Um, so just really thank you for, for your work and, and doing that. And, and I would assume it's your book. You might not know this, but was the first uh, or one of the first addressing pornography from a female perspective, you know, written in a biblical perspective? Certainly in the UK, uh, I think it was the first from a, a women's perspective. I, I might be wrong about that. I, I haven't found another. Um, I think within the US, th- there were some very short books out there. Uh, and obviously, some of the other books did acknowledge the fact that that women do struggle too. But I think historically, pornography uh, and, and, and lots of other allied issues like lust are seen largely as a male preserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that narrative has dominated most conversations on purity in recent years. Yeah. And, and actually, I'd love for you to address that because I know we've said it numerous times that, um, you know, we've seen this as a male-only issue. Um, and so maybe to, to speak to the male listeners of this podcast, uh, what, what are some of the top truths that, that you would love for men to be aware of when it comes to women and, and pornography? You know, I don't, I don't know if this is an intimidating, intimidating thought, but if you had an audience of men who showed up to hear you teach on this topic, what, what are some of those things you would like for them to know? I think first and foremost, the important thing to know is that this is a real struggle for real women. I mean, the numbers, statistics do tend to show that there are more men struggling this area than women, but it's still a significant number of women. About one in five, one in six Christian women uh, will be using pornography about once a month. Um, About a third of the hits on the average pornography site are from women. And so I think the first headline fact is this is real. Um, please don't think we just think about you know, kittens and bunnies uh, going <laughs> through fields of daisies. Um, there are real struggles in purity in our minds. I, I think the other thing to say is that we don't necessarily struggle in exactly the same way as men. I mean, it's very difficult to do a comparison between men's struggles and women's struggles, because obviously, you know, most men don't know how a woman thinks and most women don't know how a a man is thinking in this area. But there do seem to be different trends in how men and women use pornography and the types of pornography that they consume. Um, But I think those would be the top two headlines. It's real, but it's different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And but actually, we have a a wonderful call from the Lord to be spurring one another to love and good works, as it says in Hebrews. Uh, and part of that, in inappropriate ways, obviously, but part of that is encouraging one another to pursue Christ, to pursue purity uh, in all our um, daily lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Helen, one of the things you were just saying is, uh, you know, there, there's similarities in the struggle. There's also distinctions as well. And I know um, Ellen Dykus has been on this podcast and others have, have talked about how um, the porn industry has gotten creative and how they market to females. And I know in, in your book, Purity is Possible, you, you talk about the erotica novels like Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, are there any other ways in which you would like to address that, that uh, porn, the porn industry has kind of shaped its um, you know, message to, to cater to a female audience more? The porn industry has changed phenomenally over the last 40 years. 
Um, originally films were always shot by men, directed by men, and the role of the woman was to please the man. That was how a, a traditional pornographic film used to work. But over the years, a number of female um, actresses, uh, to use the, the term that they, they tend to prefer themselves, um, they would be people that would gradually move behind the camera and they would start to direct films themselves. And as they started to direct the films, uh, the actual content of the film uh, was morphed. Uh, it was shot much more for the pleasure of women. It was shot, shot much more uh, from an angle that would be pleasing to the woman rather than pleasing to a man. Uh, and as we often see, uh, if you create a product, uh, the market is probably going to be there. Uh, and so given that women already have struggles in the area that people, you know, women already think about sex, you don't need pornography uh, for that. It's something that passes through a lot of women's minds um, to actually then provide a product that uh, satisfies the desire of that heart meant that it was able to, to go up in popularity quite quickly. And now you will see a, a whole range of genres uh, that are out there purely for the, for the pleasure of women. So I think the fact that uh, the availability has changed, obviously, with the um, much more freedom these days to, to be watching uh, pornography, you know, rewind time, you know, back to my youth. If you wanted to engage in anything pornographic, you had to go to this slightly strange shop uh, that was on a high street somewhere. It was very public that you were walking in there. And if a wo woman walked into a shop like that, it, it would be quite a, a shocking thing decades ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but now pornography is on our smartphones, it's on our laptops, it's on our tablets. Again, it's, there isn't that shame barrier to get over uh, to actually log on. Uh, therefore, it's the market is there, the product is there, the accessibility is there. And therefore, it's no surprise that the number of women watching has gone up. Yeah, and, and that's that. Triple A engine. I cannot remember who uh, first coined that term, but I know Tim Chester mentions it in his book. The, you know, accessibility, affordability, and anonymity of, mm -hmm. of the porn industry, and just how that's, uh, you, you know, just reached so many more uh, because of that. And, and you, you just mentioned shame as well. I know that that's something that's typically associated with pornography. Mm -hmm. uh, could you share how, how shame is uniquely manifested among women who struggle with pornography? I know, again, there's going to be some similarities with, with male strugglers, but, but some, maybe some nuances uh, to help us uh, think about shame from a female perspective in this area. Yeah, and I think shame is quite chicken and egg in the area of pornography because it's often shame that drives people to use pornography in the first place. I'm tainted, I'm dirty, I'm not worth more than this. Uh, I'm alone, I've been rejected. There can be a whole host of shame-inducing experiences in the past that make pornography use more likely. But there's also shame having used pornography as well. It's not just the shame of actually as a Christian, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, which would be common with with men. Um, there, there's a sense of but I'm probably the only woman that's doing this because it's not spoken about very much. Um, practically everybody I've counseled in this area has after saying I've, I've used porn has followed that up with a sentence. And I know I'm the only one who does that. I am some kind of dirty woman. I'm some kind of unique woman. I'm some kind of freak is what people are, are thinking and often articulating to me as we're having these conversations. Uh, and I think the level of shame, not just of doing something that you know God wouldn't like, 
but of doing something that actually you feel you're the only one, you're the worst of the worst, uh, the worst in your church, that brings a whole new level of shame. And I think, again, it's not easy for guys. I don't want to paint a picture that it's a lot lot simpler for, for men. But I think with men in the church, there's probably a sense of, I'm probably not the only one in the church that's struggling like this. Uh, but women don't have that. And I think that drives them deep underground. And it means it can be very, very hard for them to get the help that they need. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, as we said earlier, I mean, oftentimes when this is addressed from the pulpit, it's typically, you know, men struggling with pornography and, and the, the women weren't addressed. And so, yeah, just adding the weight of that that guilt on females. And so maybe along those lines too, of why why do you think that was the case for, for so long? Was it because of the shame that, that women felt and they were um, not willing to, to speak up of it? Was it just naivete from men thinking, okay, well, this is only a, a male issue? What, what are some of your thoughts there? I think it's a combination of those things. I think statistically, um, historically, there were less women watching porn. Uh, and therefore, whilst I don't think it's ever been right to say that, you know, men struggle with less lust and women don't, I, I think if you look at actual porn consumption, then probably the statistics would point towards it being a largely male issue. Um, and I think uh, there is a sense in which um, women have perpetuated that as well, not just men. Uh, a lot of women will say, oh, well, yes, I mean, I don't know anybody that struggles like that. You know, I, I talk about, you know, lots of things with my friends. I'm really open with my friends, but nobody's told me anything like that. And so we assume just because we're not having conversations about it, that the struggle's not there. Mm-hmm. It's only when someone stands up and goes, you know what? I really struggle in this area that other women in the church then get the the bravery, the courage, the the community that they need to go. Actually, yes, I'm struggling too. Let's 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 do this together. Let's let's fight this together. Let's be more like Jesus together. Hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to to go along those lines and look at the church a little bit and how um, we can help in, in in this struggle. I reached out to a friend of mine and wanted to get her perspective on this and, and ask her for some questions for me to, to send to you. But she, she asked the question of your thoughts on how to create a youth group to be a safe place for young women to open up about this struggle. And of course, we can take that and just say, let's apply it to the overall just church body. How can we create a safe place? But then also maybe some specific ways in which, you know, that could be manifested in the, in the youth group as well. Thank you. Great question. Um, And I think first and foremost, uh, a bit of awareness raising is no bad idea. Uh, And so whether that is a book on a bookstall, it doesn't have to be mine, uh, but a book (laughs) on the bookstall, uh, which actually shows that this is a church where this topic is talked about, is a very easy place to start. Uh, If people are teaching or preaching, whether that's in Sunday services, Sunday schools or, or small groups midweek, when we come to those key passages like Ephesians and not a hint of impurity, um, just dropping in in the application that, that men and women do struggle in this area. Don't have to make a massive thing of it, uh, but just um, making people aware that this church is a church where that that is known and that conversation is a possibility can be a, a wonderful spur to people coming forward and getting help. I think there can be a case for having um change courses uh, that might be uh, an addiction support group it might be a, a pornography recovery group it might just be something like running a real change course where people can come together to look at a whole host of struggles in their life uh, but actually having a church where 
community transformation is normalized uh, is, a, is a really wonderful thing. Uh, just accepting that we are all sinners. We are all broken. We are all going to fall flat on our face with something every single day. Uh, and so, as a, but as a church, we are committed to encouraging each other to become more like Christ. Actually having those opportunities for change can send out uh, a wonderful message. But I think most of it has to happen at grassroots level. You know, the pastor or, or whoever can't go around every woman and every man in the church and ask, you know, if they're struggling with pornography or not. That's you'd have to be in a tiny church. And actually, I'm not sure that's necessarily the most appropriate thing for a pastor to be spending all of their time doing. Anyway, what we're called to be is, is people that are, are appropriately honest with one another to do that uh, biblical call to, to one another to share lives together, as Paul says he did uh, when he was writing his letters. Uh, and actually, as, as we are a church where we know that it's safe to be known, where we can share uh, and not be condemned and where we can receive other people's news and not condemn them, but rather point them to the grace of Jesus Christ and spur them on to live authentically Christ-like lives. The more we can do that, the better. And, and if that's two 14-year-olds uh, being encouraged to, to share their lives and pray for each other and get some hints from their youth leader along the way, because, you know, they're young still, they'll need some help. Or whether that's two women in their 60s um, uh, encouraging each other to live Christ-like lives. Bottom line, it's got to start with us. It's got to start with us really wanting purity, really wanting Jesus and really wanting to help other people uh, pursue him too. That's so good. And it just goes back to how vitally important a community is with, with this, this issue. I know that, that came up in uh, the episode we did with, with Deepak, that um, walking alongside each other, getting in each other's lives, getting to know each other. And the, the more you're around each other, the more we're opening up, the more we're, we're sharing struggles and, um, yeah, vitally important. Um, mm -hmm. Helen, I'm, I'm thinking in, in your years of counseling, uh, what, what have been some of the other struggles uh, that have come to the surface as you're walking alongside women who, who struggle with porn addiction? Maybe some of those secondary struggles or, or, or whatever. What are some of those that have come to the surface? Interestingly, in the counseling room, I have had very few people come to me saying I want help with pornography. People have often uh, come to me saying, I, I want help with relationships or I want help with my anxiety or I want help with self-harm or something like that. And it's often on session three once they realize that they can trust me and I'm not going to run out in the room screaming if they tell me something that they find shameful, shameful that they will then share uh, that they have a struggle with pornography as well. Uh, and so I, I think it's often a presenting issue of anxiety that people come with most. But there can be a whole host of issues that are underlying a struggle with pornography. I mean, for some people, um, it, it can be about relationships. Uh, it, it might be a single person that doesn't want to be single, that's actually really yearning for some kind of intimacy. And that's not happening in real life for, for whatever reason. Uh, and so they'll go online to find that intimacy in a, in a fake relationship. Uh, but it's not all about relationships. I think that tends to be what people assume is driving women. Um, but And sometimes it is, but it, it's not always that. For some people, there is a very deep sense of anxiety, a deep sense of dis-ease within their life. Uh, and actually what they're desperately seeking is comfort. Uh, and there is 
There is a way in which pornography does provide uh, a very inadequate, very ungodly, but but very profound sense of, of comfort. For a moment, you can feel not alone. Uh, as you get a sexual arousal, there, there is a sense of relaxation. That's, that's what sexual arousal does. Uh, and so at the end of a long, hard day, actually, it can be a comfort. It can be a release. It can be a sense of, actually, I can cope with life a little bit better. Uh, and so for, for those people, it is, it's finding other ways of accessing that comfort and that hope that, that's very important. It can be particularly uh, a strong drive in people that have struggled with, with uh, significant trauma uh, and maybe are, are struggling with some kind of um, emotional uh, dysregulation or, or difficulties in, in the wake of that trauma. Because if you are struggling with the effects of trauma very deeply, often the, the normal kind of relaxation techniques of breathing and walking and exercise and, and meditation and prayer, often they feel like they're not as effective as porn because porn actually seems to stimulate so much of the brain, uh, so much of the body. It seems to have a much deeper impact than some of these other uh, things do. And so when people are looking for comfort in the wake of trauma, uh, that can be particularly strong. But actually maybe one of the most common uh, and the one that breaks my heart I think the most often it is not people that are looking at porn because they're feeling particularly lustful or, or they're just looking for comfort at the end of a long day nor are they particularly looking for some idealized kind of relationship often it's women that have just been really badly hurt and and they're scared you know women that have experienced sexual abuse in their childhood women that have experienced domestic violence in their adulthood people that have experienced uh, sexual assault from a stranger uh, or, or, or a date rape or something like that. People for whom sex, which of course is God's good and precious and beautiful gift to humanity, people for whom that precious gift has been ripped apart and turned into something utterly ugly. And for those people, watching porn, it, it's a safe way to experience something that has been ripped from them. That their, their conception of what sex is has been so twisted by their experiences that, that actually engaging in a sexual relationship with another human being can often feel too scary. And so by going online, they can, they can taste, if you like, a, a little bit of sexual experience, but in a safe way. Uh, they can actually have some control, whereas in real life, that control has been taken away from them. Uh, and whilst, of course, I'm not saying that those people using porn is any way right or good. Clearly it's not, sure. but, but that's not being driven by a desire to rebel. It's, it's been driven by fear and pain. Uh, and that's, that's, that can take a long time to unpick uh, for women that are, are struggling uh, with that kind of background. Yeah. And, and, and so Helen, when you're meeting with someone and you discover this aspect of their, their story, uh, how do you try to begin with them? Where, where, where do you start when they share? I mean, just, you know, awful abuse that's, that's occurred to them. And like you said, this is the, the place that they go for that, that safety, for that security. How, how do you begin with them? A lot of it is, is about listening to start with, listening to their story, because again, like pornography use, things like sexual assault and sexual abuse, they're not easy to talk about. Uh, and so by just hearing what people want to share, not, not pushing them to share more than they're comfortable with, but just sharing what they want me to know, uh, that's always the first step. Uh, and then looking really at how their experiences have impacted their identity. Um, we all look in, 
in different mirrors. You know, we can look into the mirror of God's word and we can see that we are full of dignity because we're made in God's image, although we have to be humble because we are still sinners. Or we can, you know, we can look into the rose tinted mirror of the world saying you're awesome. You're just perfect just the way you are. Or we can look into the mirror of our experiences, our painful experiences. And often there we've been told that we're useless and worthless and pointless and worthy only of pain. And and if as women we look in that mirror long enough, we can genuinely believe we are miserable worms who are worthy of nothing but being hurt. Uh, We can even begin to believe that maybe God wants us to be the objects of people, you know, sexual objects for for other people. Um, Maybe we deserve all the abuse that we've had. And a lot of the counselling process is not actually focused so much on the behaviour of porn. I mean, yes, we'll talk about that at some point. It, it needs to be addressed. It can't be ignored. But a lot of the conversation is about, do you know who Christ has made you to be? You, you, you're not worthless. You're, you're in his image. You're not unlovable uh, or, or someone's toy. You, you are precious in his sight. You're not someone that doesn't matter. You're not a disposable object that a man or another woman can can hurt. You know, you are someone that he loves. You're chosen. You're called. You're you're set apart for holiness. You're, You're redeemed. You are so precious to the Lord. And we don't say that to puff people up. This is not about, you know, giving people high self-esteem. This is about helping people see themselves as God has made them to be in his immeasurable kindness and grace. And as people begin to see that they're not worthless, but they're precious, as they begin to see that they're not useless, but they're gifted in the kindness of God, as people begin to see that their life is not meaningless, but actually that call to holiness has huge purpose. It's at that point that it becomes possible to break away from things like pornography use, because quite frankly, when we believe we are worthless, we act in worthless ways. And when we believe that we are God's precious children designed to be set apart for his good purposes, then that is when we begin to act like God's children set apart for a life of holiness. Hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine that those are uh, incredibly difficult conversations to enter into, but at the same time, what an amazing opportunity uh, to be able to communicate that truth uh, to someone who, who has then through something absolutely horrific in their life. Um, so thank you for, for that work. Um, Helen, you also bring up in your book, um, and this was actually a question uh, I received as well, just the, the correlation with pornography and same-sex attraction. And I know that's, I think through one of the stories in, in your book, you know, you have several vignettes of, of uh, just stories of um, others who are struggling with this. And that was one that, is specifically addressed. So I'd love for you just to touch on that a little bit. Thank you. Um, And I think this is something that's particularly true for young people and particularly true uh, within the church as well. I'm I'm hoping that in the church, we are getting better about talking wisely uh, with people that are same-sex attracted. I think some of the narratives uh, of anger uh, and vitriol that maybe we have seen in the past are are beginning to come down to something that is much more uh, biblical uh, and much more nuanced. But I think it still can be really hard if you are in a church uh, and you're struggling for same-sex attraction and, and you're wanting to live an authentically biblical life for Jesus, but you're finding that hard and there are all these confusing thoughts going around in your mind. 
And that's especially true for, for young people who are maybe having those thoughts for the first time going through puberty. Uh, they're starting to discover uh, what comes naturally to them and what doesn't. And because it can be quite hard to have those conversations in a family, it can be quite hard to have those conversations in a church. Uh, young people uh, and indeed older people do what comes naturally to most of us these days. If we've got a question, we go online. I mean, for many of us, that's now our first port of call. What, whatever we want to know, uh, it is let's let's just jump on a search engine, uh, type in the term and let's let's see what happens. And given it's hard to talk about these things verbally, given most of our natural instincts is to find out information online, then I, we shouldn't be surprised that when people first start to experience that same-sex attraction feeling, they are going to probably go online uh, and Google uh, what that feels like uh, and, and find out other communities that some people will almost test out whether their same-sex attracted feelings really are what turns them on, if you like, uh, by, by watching same-sex pornography. It, it kind of goes, oh, well, is this me or isn't this me? It helps them, well, they think it helps them discover uh, who the real them is. I think that's going to be an issue that as uh, youth workers and parents and pastors and friends, we're going to have to wrestle with more and more. But I think the, the more we can get used to having conversations about same-sex attraction uh, and like pornography, not pretending this is something that doesn't happen in our young people, not pretending that this is something that doesn't happen in our churches. And just very gently listen to people, um, help people understand what Jesus's call is in that situation. Uh, and again, very gently and humbly walk alongside them as they make decisions for the future. And we can be prayerful for them that they will, will follow Christ in, in what is undoubtedly going to be a hugely confusing time for them. Mm -hmm. uh, then the more we can have those conversations, then at more, at least even if there is a little bit of online engagement, we, we can bring that back to scripture uh, and actually look at what Jesus has to say too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that is so good. And, and Helen, I know we're going to need to start wrapping this up before too long, but, but something I did want to mention as well is, you know, your book, I feel like it's so helpful that it addresses just our thought life, um, fantasy and, and lust. And I mean, I know that's in the, the subtitle of your book, but you know, I think so often it seems like those struggles can be downplayed when it comes to maybe comparing to, you know, hardcore pornography. And, you know, perhaps some of those even listening are thinking, well, I'm not indulging in pornography, but but I'd love for you to, to share a little bit, um, just some thoughts that you have for, for women when it, when it comes to their thought life in this area. Yes, and it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to think, well, I haven't watched pornography, uh, therefore I'm okay in this area. But the reality is, you know, the Bible talks about lust. The Bible talks about lust as something that, you know, Jesus, it does not honour Jesus at all. Uh, and to be looking at another person like an object is not what it means for us to be operating as a community of people in the image of God. We see that uh, with David and Bathsheba, don't we? He, he looks out across the roofs uh, and he sees someone and he wants her. And so he he takes her. We see that in the story of Tamar as well in, in different ways. And so actually using someone else, a precious image bearer, bearer maybe potentially a brother or sister in Christ uh, as an object uh, for our own pleasure is never the authentic call to community uh, that Jesus wants for us. So rather than thinking in terms of actually have I watched porn or not this week, which of course is an important question, I think the wider question is, am I using my mind in ways that honour Christ this week? 
Now, I don't want to come across as too hard-lined because I have yet to meet anyone uh, that can answer that with a resounding yes. You know, we have to remember grace. This Christian life that we are engaged in is a constant pull between the old self and the new self. And we mustn't be naive about that. Uh, and I think if, if we try and pretend that we're all thinking pure thoughts all the time, that that encourages people who are struggling to go underground deeper and deeper. Uh, you know, it's much healthier to go, you know what, I am struggling with lust. I, I am struggling to be faithful in my thought life. I have been reading a book. I have been watching a TV program that's not helpful to me. And I, I think as churches, as women, you know, we've got to be really careful. We don't want to go down the legalistic, have you done X, Y and Z, yes or no, because that never helps. We, we don't want to go down that. We live in a culture which is so permissive that it's impossible to be pure because that's just so defeatist. And we don't want to go down the, the kind of hardcore life of if you thought an impure thought, you're a terrible Christian. And if you're thinking pure thoughts, you're a great Christian, uh, because that's not. That's not quite what the Bible is saying. But what we do want is to be real about the fact that our hearts are murky places. As Jeremiah reminds us, our, our feelings, our, our hearts can be deceitful above all things. Impurity is real. Lust is real in, in all of our lives in different ways. And it's worth remembering that hating sex is, is not actually what purity looks like either. Uh, lest there might be a few people thinking, well, I don't think impure thoughts because I just I just hate sex completely. You know, that, that's not what Jesus is calling to. It's, it's his gift. You know, our call is to go. Life is messy. My mind is messy. This is a battle. But I'm going to engage in this battle with my eyes fixed on heaven, confident of the cross in my past, equipped with the spirit right now and in community with my sisters in Christ. This is a battle I'm going to keep fighting. So my mind becomes more Christ like. And I think the more we can just be honest and normalize the battle, uh, but but engage in it wholeheartedly, then we'll all be in a much better place. Amen to that, because it is like you said, we want grace, but we think of even you know, Jesus's teaching on, on lust, uh, he, he wasn't doing that to rub our faces in our sin, but ultimately to, to point us to our need for him, that there were those who thought, well, I can do this. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not committing the act of adultery, but, but him highlighting the fact of, look, if you're thinking this. And so, yes, being open, being honest, being vulnerable, emphasizing grace, emphasizing, hey, we're in the midst of the struggle, but also by God's grace, that same grace to be fighting back and pushing back on those those thoughts and those fantasies that um, that plague all of us. As you said, we all have deceitful hearts. Um, so Helen, as always, there's so much more I want to ask. There's so much more I want to talk about, but I do want to point everyone to your book, uh, Purity as Possible, How to Live Free of the Fantasy Trap. This is available through the Good Book Company. I know at Amazon as well, people can check that out. But as I said from the outset and just continually, thank you so much for your courage to write on this. Thank you for your vulnerability. Uh, this is this is not easy. And, and to be one of the first to, to be writing on this, that, that does sincerely take a lot of courage. And so just thank you for your work and uh, pray that the Lord continues to use that uh, to, to minister to others. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. God is good. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay. Yes.